Hello. I just got nervous. Do you think that's going to be permanent with musical artists not retiring? What do you mean? You mean like Paul McCartney? Yeah. I mean, are we going to have an 80-year-old Lady Gaga? Why would Definitely. you retire? Yeah. People are still listening. Why? It's music, dude. Yeah, it's music. Yeah, I love that. Like, you want to do that forever. Some people definitely outstay their welcome, but, you know, some made music. Like Johnny Cash, right till the end, man. One yeah. of his best albums was one of his last albums. I used to think naively that I would be so pissed if I was a music star and I had to play the same song again and again and again. But then I realized every time they play that song, they're like, oh my God, this thing has made me so much freaking money. I love this song. No, it's not that. Yeah, With a good song, it just it feels good every time, Brian. You just oh, it you, you're playing it. They do. You're playing it with the crowd. No way. Yeah, I just hope that there's going to be 80 year old artists making their own songs in. in uh, Brian, do you know what it feels like time? to be adored? No. Troy does. It's yeah, <laughs> it's very powerful. <laughs> it feels it. really. It feels really, really good, Brian. <laughs> Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a conversation about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting Newsletter and host the Rebooting Show podcast. Each week, I'm joined by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. In case you haven't heard for some reason, AI is coming. Actually, no, wait, it's here. Whether it's the Balenciaga Pope silliness or apocalyptic warnings that maybe humanity will end because Microsoft was pissed about losing to Google at search, AI is sort of like Trump. It's everywhere and everyone's got a hot take whether you like it or not. This is particularly true in the media business because when it comes to tech disruptions, media always goes first. And AI tools, particularly when it comes to the creation of media and also the distribution of media, are ready made to have a far more profound and quicker impact on the media sector than many other areas. Or maybe that's just what I focus on, so the urgency seems high to me. Either way, it's top of mind in most of my discussions. Just this week, I spoke with a longtime publishing executive who's grappling with the impact of AI-enabled search in the future, admitting that anything that speeds people's searches by providing the answers directly to them in the form of a chat is at base a threat to many publishing business models. It's hard to imagine a scenario where the answers to chats aren't good enough for many commercial searches that today end up on publisher web pages and occupy a critical part of those companies' business engines. And that's because, of course, this type of traffic is known as intent, and that is the most valuable for publishers. I mean, just this week, I was reading an article on Yahoo News, of all places, that broke the story that Trump would not be fingerprinted or have his mugshot taken during his arraignment. Now that's pertinent. It got a flood of traffic. I couldn't help but notice, but the ads I saw on those pages were for toe fungus treatments. And that's the market telling you how advertisers value breaking news in an area like Trump. They want to stay as far away from that as possible. Now compare that with a search on Google, which today leads you to a product comparison page on Yahoo. Those are highly valuable and they retain their value over time and most news does not. So in essence, a lot of this kind of evergreen content subsidizes, for instance, news content, which publishers find difficult making money because guess what? Advertisers don't want to be next to that kind of stuff. So this week we consider what the age of AI will mean to the media business. This is a conversation I believe we'll have in many permutations in the months to come. 
After all, Alex is alarming me by declaring that, quote unquote, the spaceship is over the White House, while Troy seems excited by the business possibilities. I try to occupy the middle ground, of course, but this spaceship over the White House talk has me wondering why we're doing this at all. I mean, this seems like an area we should maybe discuss a lot more. As always, we would appreciate your feedback and help in growing this podcast. Big thanks to David Grant, who used to run the Meta Journalism Project, who wrote in with some very thoughtful feedback on our Formats episode and also a newsletter I wrote on the topic. David actually turned this into a LinkedIn post with some great thoughts about the role formats have in building products. I highly recommend it. We'll link to it in the show notes. And I plan to write a little bit more on this in the Rebooting newsletter, so make sure you signed up. While I'm on the promotion bit, if you haven't already, check out the Rebooting show. I have an episode coming up next week with Substack CEO Chris Best. So be sure to subscribe to that feed and check it out and send in your feedback. My email is brian at thereboating.com. And also, if you have a chance, leave a rating and a review of this podcast on Apple or Spotify and share it with anyone you think would find it valuable. Tweet it or maybe take it to LinkedIn, the last good social network. Here's a conversation. All right, I want to start with like where we are on AI right now, because I feel like we've talked about it like ad nauseum, and so we're going to continue to talk about it ad nauseum. That we've talked about it, have we talked about it here too much, do you think? No, I don't think too much. I just think that, you know, it can be a little repetitive to some degree. In, in some ways, it reminds me of the Trump indictment, which as we're recording this, it, it hasn't even come out, but everyone has to talk about it, even though like until they've like actually seen it, there's not really all that much to say. And I feel like with I feel AI, like my, I feel like people like it when I write about AI, so I just keep writing about it. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, because right now is a perfect time, right? There are a lot of tests and experiments, and all of us, probably Troy more than than both of us, you and I, Alex, are trying to extrapolate from this limited information and and come to some sort of grand conclusions. When you know, probably the reality is, who knows? Let's start with where are we now, and I want to start with the idea of maximalists and minimalists and those in between, because Troy. I think you're a maximalist. I've read I've read your stuff on AI. You're very excited by this stuff. Yeah, very. I don't know if I'm excited. I, I think that when I was reading a, a little bit about it in the last couple of days, it was pretty shocking to see some of the extreme points of view expressed as op-eds in places like The Times and The Atlantic and Time Magazine from seemingly credible people like research scientists and the like, really warning that this thing could get out of hand, that the evolution of large language models to what we see in ChatGPT4 now to something that approaches AGI could easily just have consequences that we, we can't really fathom to the point that it's just the contrast is funny to me. I think that we, you know, there's always a natural kind of hype cycle, but it wasn't very long ago that people thought, well, this is just an acute little extrapolation of autocorrect and that it was just a machine using statistics to, to kind of model language, just like we figured out how to let the machine model go or chess. So it kind of figured out what the formula was for language, which is something that could mimic reasoning or could do a certain type of reasoning, but had no knowledge and no kind of memory, certainly nothing that approached any of the nuances of human thought because we're born of the kind of ability to sense all of the things around us and this kind of notion of consciousness. But the essays were really like hyperbolic and foreboding. There's a line I have here from, how do you pronounce this guy's like Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's an AI researcher. And he said, if someone builds a too powerful AI under present conditions, I expect that every single member of the human species and all biological life on Earth dies shortly thereafter. I talked to my son about it. He's like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. 
we're all going to die anyway. Then again, I was posting photos right before when COVID was starting, before it all went down. And I was, no panic here at the supermarket. So he wasn't alone, Brian. There's Tristan Harris that was part of the anti-Facebook kind of brigade. And they wrote in, in a New York Times essay that democracy is a conversation. Conversation relies on language. When language is hacked, the conversation breaks down and democracy becomes untenable. I found there were like really extreme positions on this. And, and the thread through them all was basically kind of the overload of our information ecosystem. And the way I saw it, and by the way, one, one last point on this is there's this guy who seems to have the most insane insatiable thirst for knowledge is Tyler Cohen, who's an economist who writes like oh, yeah. margin, what's like a marginal revolution or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, he was the most sort of sober about it. And I would encourage people to read what he wrote, but he just sort of said that we'll get through it and it'll pose challenges. We'll navigate them. And I don't think there's really practically any way that we can see in turning back. And why wouldn't we want to, if this does represent new intelligence, why wouldn't we want the world to benefit from that? We're kind of stuck between two places now. We see on one side, how can we let, you know, our enemies like China and others around the world get ahead of us on this? It's clearly going to create advantage in any kind of military or kind of future conflict. In some ways, it's kind of replaced the kind of nuclear arms race. If there are all the benefits that we suspect around and how to extend life or diagnose disease or educate people that can't afford to be educated. There just seems to be so much promise. My focus has been to try to understand what it means to media. It brings up a lot of the themes, Brian, that the audience will be familiar with from things we have talked about, kind of small is beautiful, from institutional to individual brands, the importance of community, all that stuff. I just think it, it accelerates all the stuff we saw with social media, which is more people create shit, content becomes less valuable, the feeds and the ways that you navigate content become more cluttered, it becomes harder to recognize what's real from what isn't. And, you know, as such, it, it makes it harder to be a media company. Where I went back to, other than the stuff I just said, was that there's real value in a chat world of when there's so much noise in the world, brands actually become valuable wayfinders. So it's almost like a kind of intel inside thing. If knowledge can be marked with the authority of a brand, I can see purpose there as a marker or as a verifier, validator. I also think that data sets become really important. So some brands, some media brands focus on aggregating data, right? If you have health condition database or you have a database of local contractors or senior living facilities and that becomes an asset that you own, it strikes me that it becomes more and more valuable or sort of certainly if not more valuable than protectable. I'm into that as a concept, partly because I'm exposed to it a lot in a business I work on. Those are some intro thoughts. I don't know if that resonated, any of that resonated with you. Yeah. Here are three things that I had written down for media companies, but really anyone, but media companies specifically, things that they should look at today. Do you want me to list them? Go ahead. First of all is to look at anything that you felt you couldn't do because it required scale and see if you can narrow that gap a little bit. So I know that a lot of media companies are kind of defined by the scale and their budgets, but I think a real competitive advantage that AI can give smaller teams is to try new things out that might have required a set amount of people's 
to do and, and cannot be done faster. Example, like videos with infographics, any of that data stuff that used to take a really long time. And I would say that a lot of them are already starting this stuff, but you should definitely put it into your plan to do that type of stuff. That's my first one. So Very competing, Alex. competing with scale. And I do think that that kind of dismantling of scale as a moat might be kind of an interesting theme that keeps showing mm-hmm. up. Two is really understanding the value of your data. So your data might become the most valuable thing you own and data being content, et cetera. That stuff used to be stuff that you can go to any used bookstore and buy 500 issues of National Geographic because there's always kind of an old collection of that. And I I feel sometimes that media companies treat their old evergreen content like that and just feed it to Google and make really like fractional sense on the potential dollar value of this stuff. And what do I mean by that? Really, I think companies should start pulling away a lot of the data and their ability to be scanned by learning models. Now, a lot of it's happened already, but if you have any data that you think is proprietary, I would consider what you want to pull away from it. And I was having this conversation with this startup who's putting a lot of stuff that they own as SEO because that was a great marketing campaign for them to have a lot of that data as SEO when people do search queries. But I think I might have convinced them to pull a lot of that data away and hold it while all these things happen because the SEO value is really fractional compared to the value of the data. And I think we we need to start thinking like that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah good one. But I think these are all like accelerations. Then we'll get on to how we think because like, this is accelerating a trend in which scale has gone from a competitive advantage to, in some cases, an albatross. My third thing is that it's actually much more of a personal thing, and I think it applies to everyone, and it applies to Brian specifically. I have become much more knowledgeable and intentional about how I think about AI ever since I've done one thing, and that thing is to try to save half an hour a day, an hour a day, by using AI. So every day, my goal is to try, where can I shave off an hour of stuff that you would do that day by using AI personally, because I think it teaches me how to apply it to my business and to the advisory work I do. So for example, planning a trip, creating a table of destinations, planning a shopping list, a checklist of things, you know, I'm going to go on a road trip and seeing like, you know, being quite intentional about this would have taken me 20 minutes and it just took me 30 seconds. Learning new things, I've been doing a lot of that and also forcing myself to go to ChatGPT over Google, which took a couple of days and now I'm in ChatGPT 90% of the time. And the only reason I go to Google is for real-time news because I don't have access to the web yet through my ChatGPT. But try to shave off whatever you're comfortable with, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour of work that you do every day using AI, I can guarantee we'll find stuff to do and it will it'll make you feel much more comfortable about the technology and what it can do. That's it. Those are great, Alex. Thanks for that. Yeah. I just want to start with the maximalist and because I think you you sort of laid out the camps, right? To me, like there's the maximalists who are like, this is going to change everything. This is like one brain. And then there's the doomers. And sometimes these overlap and they're the ones, this is this could end humanity when you were saying, so this good chance of just wiping us all out. Let's, let's plow forward. And then the pragmatists, which is like Tyler Cowan. Yeah, this is probably going to be a profound change, more profound for some people in some professions like media, I think. But that ultimately, you know, nothing ends. We split the atom and we're still here. We end up learning to live with all of these things. The way they're going to be used and the impacts they're going to have, I don't think anyone, any of these people can say that they know at all. Take deep fakes. So we've been hearing about deep fakes for I feel like 10 years now. And AI is perfect for deepfakes. 
what I see right now in the most part is they're used for jokes. And I don't I like the deep fakes of presidents playing video games in the split screen. Yeah, that's very funny. And yeah. like the Balenciaga Pope, it launches like all of these chin stroking articles about, oh no, here comes the deep fakes and the misinformation. Because misinformation is everyone loves misinformation. I wanted to ask you guys about that because now I'm obviously a, a pretty active and kind of voracious media consumer, but when I read anything, when I encounter information, I look at the institution or the brand that it came from. I look at the individual, try to understand. I mean, I feel uncomfortable sort of over-processing or a piece of content not knowing its origin. So I always look for the provenance of a piece of content. I talk to my family about it. How do you understand where something that you read, where it came from and how accurate it is? And do you feel like that's part of your your kind of media consumption process? And, and, and I just can't understand how it's not. And so the idea that, that I'm going to be overwhelmed by something that's just sort of consumes me without any kind of critical interpretation of it, I find hard to fathom. I think we're downplaying a few things. Sure, you might have the wherewithal to be more intentional about you know what you define as true or what you believe, but I think even if you do, but other people don't, it can still impact you. My biggest. So you're telling me that someone that's not me just reads something they see on Facebook and they're like, "Yep, that's true." Holy <laughs> shit! Yes. I'm going to go out and protest. Yes. People do 100%. that. But I but think that's what I'm getting at. It because there's going right. to be so much bullshit out there that like the default position is going to be everything is bullshit. Now, I don't know if this is a good or a bad. That's exactly, but that's my point. So let me take a step back in because I'm actually on the side of, I'm not calling the extinction event, but I'm on the side of people who think we should be very, very careful with this stuff for the only reason that we have no sense of, or we can't foresee any of the use cases popping up. They're popping up faster than we can absorb them. And we actually don't know what happens when something that used to take a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand people, a billion dollars, whatever, can be done one by one person in their bedroom. We don't know that. The nuclear bomb, rockets to space, all this type of stuff, it's easier to control because if any government wants to start doing this stuff, then you need a huge amount of infrastructure. Here, we don't know what somebody can do in their bedroom, biology of it or whatever. Like we have no idea what happens. And I'm not saying it's 100% plausible that this is really bad for humanity, but there's definitely a non-zero well, what, what chance. What might they do in that. their bedroom, Alex? What might they be doing? Once you start having an AI that can control an interface that connects to the internet using a plugin or something like that and applies some sort of logic, you can do incredible damage and probably very advanced hacking. You could do the social engineering required to get a lab to do something crazy. All of these th things are far-fetched, but they're no longer impossible. And it also gets amplified or that type of worry gets exacerbated when you start thinking about this hypothesis as to why we're not seeing any other intelligent species in the universe is because when they reach their stage, they reach a level of technological advancement that completely eradicates them. We put these two things together and you're like, I'm okay, really well, this could be one of those like events. This episode. I'm loving it. <laughs> I didn't know you'd be the doomerist. I thought you were going to be the right. pragmatist. Do you have a bomb I'm shelter? This is good. Well, I mean, I live on a farm. I have my Troy's own on the side of private equity. They love this shit. They love it. Look, Always. I can. I also love it. I also think this is the closest we're getting to the Star Trek future where knowledge is instantly accessible to anyone. And it becomes a fact that 
hey, because nothing is real or everything can be faked, then being close to each other and being connected and in, a, in real ways becomes much more important. Maybe this is the thing that completely dismantles kind of the social media ecosystem and gets us back to being a little bit more human about the way we <laughs> spend our time. However, my biggest thing, just taking it back to media, sorry, that was a long roundabout way. I am suspicious of all this stuff, but bring it back to media. The thing that matters to me the most is not like right now, everybody's kind of amused by the fact that fake things can be made real and be confused at real. I think it becomes really important when nothing real, and you said that, Brian, but when nothing real, no matter how bad it is, can be disproven, but nothing else than saying, oh, this is a deep fake. This is a deep fake is this is fake news times a million. But it's, that's what I mean. This is all an acceleration of the, all of the trends that Troy talked about are just an acceleration of the things we've already seen. I'm not sure if it's a little bit of apocalyptic. You're downplaying the profound changes that happens when anything can be created artificially and look 100% real. I think this is, it's profound. It's profound when robo-spam caller hacker can use your wife's voice to call you. It's profound when news can be completely dismissed as untrue, even though you have video evidence. The cops go, no, 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 that's a deep fake. You look at kind of stories that happened in the last five years. Well, that video is fake of cops brutalizing someone on the street or the telephone conversations that people are having commuting fraud. That's also fake. All of it is fake. And I think that it might hugely benefit people who are shameless and willing to bend those things to their will. So it is profound. And in media is also very profound because media is based around the interface, whether it was newspaper or TV, whatever interface is being used to project the media to people. And this completely and deeply changes what an interface means. And so everything's about to change. It's literally like I'm having conversations with people. And what I want to say is that the spaceship is floating above the White House. And we're all talking about how that spaceship isn't that realistic looking. No, it's there. You know, like people say, well, if you look closely to the Pope, his belt buckle doesn't look real. It yeah, made the, the news. You can tell with the hands. The hands are where it's. You should stop. Don't don't take any more calls, Alex. Six months ago, it would have it would have been like, oh, he he doesn't really look like the Pope. Today, we're we're looking at the shape of his fingernails. Tomorrow, that stuff's gone. We're the frogs in a pot of boiling water here, and everybody's going. There are two types of people. People go to me. Yes, this is incredible. It's deeply impacting the way I think about the future and the way I spend my life. And people go. Yeah, but you know, I asked it to write a Seinfeld script and it wasn't really perfect. All right, great. A year ago, that was impossible or that wasn't available to us. I think there's three groups. There's the people that, you know, then like, there's this Brian, is incredible. I'm going to make a lot of money <laughs> off this, number one. Number two is, this is incredible. It's going to extinguish humanity. And number three are the Seinfeld people. That's where I am. Yeah, but the Seinfeld people are going to be run over by this stuff. It's changing so fast. I yes. understand that. But honestly, there's so many people in this world. Like, so much stuff has still not been ironed out with any of this. And there is still not that much evidence that regular people want all this stuff. I know people cite that a bunch of people went to chat GPT one time. This is not yet a consumer, like a regular person phenomenon. But Brian, that is that, a that's crazy statement. That's, yeah, that's so crazy. Insane. And it's being That's it's insanity. being woven into everything that we that we use, everything that we do, every application. Oh, I know. We Big use. data was like. I got to tell you, Alex, what you just said, I found was pretty compelling. Thank you for your contribution to that. I was on the phone with a guy who has an AI startup yesterday, and he's like, "Yeah, I need to make some money for my mom, but the world's 
probably going to end by 2040. And I was like, well, this guy's an insider, really smart, Israeli AI and, you know, guy. And I just had to stop and say, I was entirely dismissive of the kind of the doom people. I'm not in their camp, but we're finding ourselves in a situation, guys, where we need AI to protect us from AI. Very likely. And I think that it just means, I always wondered when I was, when I was young, like how would society ever sort of catapult itself into a kind of doomsday scenario? And it's precisely this. It's like we are driven forward by both our love of technology and a scenario where we kind of have no choice. It's just this kind of weird prisoner's dilemma that we're finding ourselves in where we need to have it because of it's going to provide protection and we love technology and we're worried about the Chinese and it's going to cure cancer and all this stuff. But at the same time, it's kind of sowing the seeds for our demise. I don't think that's entirely unrealistic, Brian. Well, of course not, because we've been telling ourselves these stories for generations about technology taking. I mean, if this didn't play completely into science fiction, I don't think that there would be as much of the doom no, but, I, but look at it in very real terms. What this is able to do, pass the bar exam or socially manipulate people so that they answer capture thing. This is beta software. And you're saying this is not a consumer. This is the fastest growing consumer product ever, by all accounts. It jumped to 100 million users. The reason you can't use it sometimes is because it is so popular that the servers go down. That and he didn't pay for a subscription. He didn't pay. I was at a conference thinking that I would be one of the people kind of ahead of the curve. But everyday people were telling me, oh, yeah, I'm already using it to plan all my travel. You know, I, I used it to plan all my kind of itineraries here. The other person said, yeah, for my performance review on my team, I just created a little a script and I created a little XML structure and I got ChatGPT to generate all the performance reviews after I put in some feedback and it saved me at least three oh, days Oh, that's of work. convenient. That's cool. I used I to hate doing I'm seeing these points come up every day. When I was, I remember when I was trying to tell people about email and they were saying, yeah, yeah, that's cool, but yeah, we got a fax, it's fine. And it took three, four, five years to get there, even though there was a leapfrog technology and anybody that tried email once would have seen that, wow, this is going to change the world. This is so profoundly different, so profoundly different. And I don't think the world's going to end and I'm an optimist, but I think everything's on the table right now. And Are you we can't okay, so dismiss it. You're saying three to five years? Like, when is this? Because I've, I've seen zero, I've seen zero economic forecasts change because of this. I've seen zero forecasts of productivities changed because of this. So when does that start? Or is it just because only people in Silicon Valley understand this, that no economist has changed any of their forecasts? We were all there at the beginning of the internet. It took years, okay? It took yeah. years before, okay. But here, for some reason, we're like, look, guys, it's been three months and the Pope still has weird fingers and it hasn't changed the economy yet. <laughs> Oh my God. You know, like I'm telling you, the water was freezing cold. We put the frog in it. Now the water is nice and warm and it's over a nice boiling pot. And the frogs are having a conversation saying, well, I'm not boiling yet, so therefore I will never boil. That's what we're saying. Have you seen the speed at which this has moved? It will change every industry. There's not one product that I use where AI has been integrated in, in, in some meaningful way. This is a foundational change to the way things are going to work. And at some point, we're going to wake up and the world's going to be different. 10 okay, years, Okay, so when is that years, point? Things and, take and let's, time. Let's bring it back to like media. When is media going to be completely changed by all of this? Because I think media always goes first with these things. Always, but usually it goes first. And this is completely in the wheelhouse of upending business models. And I wonder about things. it immediately, actually. And I had this conversation with someone that was looking at buying a company a couple of days ago. And I'm like, this is a company that's 
large and it's a utility. It's primarily page-based on the internet, has applications, and people use it as a resource to get information. And I said to him, how do we model, you know, three to five years out? What assumptions do we make about just kind of fundamental changes to the way that, as Alex said, you know, how the interface changes to information? Because I think there are ways to create value in and around the chatbot and it's going to change the, fundamentally the kind of paradigm of how we interact with information, structured information, unstructured information on the internet. I find it hard right now, to, particularly because this is a company dependent on, I would say, last generation models of revenue generation on the internet. How do we think about a three-year horizon? And I think that if you just want to look back a little bit, if we said three years ago that BuzzFeed was going to be a penny stock because the changes in the kind of middle of the internet monetization model would so undermine their business model that it would basically limit growth and therefore the stock would tank. How do we look at that when we're buying companies right now? Do you have a thought on that, Brian? Or, or more specifically, you write a newsletter. It feels intimate. It feels like Brian's writing me a note twice a week and you do podcasts and stuff and that feels kind of sustainable, right? What if you're a company that relies on traffic coming to pages? How, how should we be thinking about it? Because that's a lot of folks, man. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of businesses. Yeah. Do you think Neil... Vogel wakes up every day is, oh my God, this is over. Well, I think that, I don't think you do I don't know, he that, doesn't tell me that he does that. I don't know, I'm, I was just looking at futures stocks. Not great, but they, they were sort of overvalued to begin with. Why is John Steinberg there? He must just be ready to put his head in the pillow. How can these businesses even survive if the ship is over the White House? I mean, which seems pretty impending. I just want to know when it is going to overturn society. Just Well, I think that now we're getting a little nitty gritty and, you know, John's decisions don't determine how I think about this. And I would also say that Future has a business model that leans more towards a kind of transactional ad system that is perhaps better suited to the future. They catalog products and sell products and, you know, it's more as much a data business as any modern publisher. But Neil's business for sure is dependent on cranking page views. I don't know. I don't know. It feels like one would pragmatically want to apply a discount to those revenue streams. We've talked about it before. The whole monetization structure of the internet based on uniques, pages, banners, impressions, all that is being eroded pretty quickly. And it's true that we're likely, as with every technology, we're overestimating its short-term impact and also underestimating its long-term impact. I think the thing that's happening right now is that it's moving so fast. So there's going to be a long tail here. And I think sometimes I come across as flippant about saying advertising is dead and all that stuff's going away. I think it'll take longer for a lot of these things to happen. But if you do think about the interface changing, not for everything, but for a lot of things, how much time we spend on them, what those interfaces look like, et cetera, the way we, and especially around the way we consume knowledge, media, content, those things are going to change relatively rapidly because we know the time frame that it took for things to change from the App Store launching. We could start looking at it like that and look at that time horizon. So three to five years, I think a lot of products that we use that used to have an interface have a vastly different interface or are purely conversational or use some models that we cannot even imagine today. And that changes the economics and it changes where you can put ads and it changes the way ads are meant to work. And it opens up a bunch of new pathways for the incumbents to be attacked from all sorts of directions and also for them to kind of reinforce themselves. If you own the OSs and the phones and stuff like that, you're going to start squeezing folks everywhere you can. So I don't know. Could be that the New York Times is 
is like tiny in five years and some blogger has something that's worth a hundred billion dollars or could be that yeah. advertising no longer exists, but we haven't ever added this much chaos into the mix. That's all I'm saying. Hey, someone will someone will put a logo on that spaceship over the White House. <laughs> Yeah, do you see right. the like, baseballs putting these superimposed logos on the mound and stuff? Ads always find a way. My money is that it's going to take longer than both of you think. So we'll see. I mean, mostly because this advance and particularly the hyperventilating over it and the bedwetting and whatnot, it's happening at a time that's totally different for tech. And I keep going back to this. I hate to break it to your friends in Silicon Valley, Alex, but you guys are no longer the good guys by default. There's been more scrutiny put on the role of the technologies that have come large part out of Silicon Valley in remaking society in ways that often aren't very good. So when this comes down the pipe and you have the doomerism and you also comes down the pike at a time of governments being very, very involved in the economy, the most they've been involved in the economy, probably since Reagan and Thatcher, there's going to be a ton, a ton of government intervention in this. Italy already banned chat GPT. Europeans are always going to be European. And it's going to slow down. That's what that's what governments do. They're going to pump the brakes on this. So I think it's just going to take a lot longer. And if I was like a publisher, I'd be like, we got, we got, we've got enough problems to deal with the next three years. We can deal with this later. I think a lot of people are going to just experiment with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that for those three years, you can make a little bit of money and then hopefully sell it to some uh, hedge fund that's going to gut it for the photocopiers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, private equity, I don't mean hedge fund. But uh, Troy, go ahead, sorry. I think that it'll take longer too, Brian. But I think the points I would make after thinking about a little bit would be the following, is that the navigational model of the internet that we know today will not sustain. So we're about to see something different. We're having a hard time figuring out how that incense page content production and what it looks like from a monetization perspective. I think the artifact that is an article or a piece of content, videos do much better because they own a timeline and they can fit advertising in and it's a kind of different ball of wax. But the article will exist sort of tangentially to chat, but less importance with less importance than it has today. I think we're going to see interesting things happen at a page level. I think of them today as smart pages. And they're pages where we, we're not fully just, it's not chat on one side or nothing. It's like stuff that can be manipulated on a page, whether it's a table or content or whatever with AI. So in some ways, the page kind of comes to life. And I'm really interested in this concept. So that if you're trying to sort through information on how to compare bicycles on a page, that you could imagine the page doing more than just being a kind of flat, static kind of article format. And I think that there's a dynamism that may be enabled by AI that's, that'll be an interesting area for experimentation. So I think there's going to be new kind of media types as a result of that. I think mm -hmm. that media brands are going to really be important, whether they're individuals or institutional brands, to tell people to like to create a reference point in any AI-generated content that there is something underneath of it, that it's valid. I think there's a whole new ecosystem of validation that's going to evolve. Much like that company that, I forget the name of the company that Yahoo just bought that ranks news, just a kind of systematic way of ranking the quality of a piece of content. And I think you're going to see this kind of validation layer become extremely important. I think that anybody that has anything that approximates unique data, whether it's 
data about an event, data about a product, data about a business or you know, anything really stand to benefit from a world where there's a kind of robot machine aggregating up information, unique data sets and, and a kind of structure around that that can be manipulated. It strikes me, particularly when it's connected to an economic event, it strikes me that there's lots of value to be kind of extracted from that. I'll just go one step further because you guys haven't interrupted me yet. I think there's a couple interesting things. One is Google is so advantaged in this war because of all the data they have and all the users they have and all the surface area that they have. I think that we haven't even begun to see them compete. And that's going to be really, really interesting. Like how does BARD, their equivalent of ChatGBT, sit next to search, which is the most traffic surface in the world? How does it manifest inside of YouTube? and all of the other applications inside of mail and all that. So I, I think that, that mm -hmm. Google's going to kind of fight back really strongly here. And I think that OpenAI kind of slept or just kind of strolled into this kind of role as consumer tech startup when it was kind of a research kind of nonprofit. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how they fight to become a real significant player in this, even though they have early sort of first mover advantage. And, um, and first mover advantage historically doesn't actually dictate who wins. Google right. wasn't the first mover in search. So totally. um, RIP InfoSeq. You know, one other thing I found Hot interesting fun. is, I don't know if you guys listened to the Lex Friedman interview of Sam Altman. God, Sam is a compelling, compelling dude. It wasn't- it Sam really, is very compelling. Lex, I got He's a very cool guy. A little bit. Anyway, it was a couple hours, Brian. It wasn't a six hour one. Is <laughs> that a short one? There's this thing that he calls system level requests that are becoming part of the chatbot, which I find really interesting. And that would be answer in the from the point of view of a libertarian or from the point of view of anybody that has a way of processing, looking at information. It could be religious, it could be political, it could be from the perspective of a media brand. Basically, there's sort of meta controls in their chat engine that says that, because nothing is ever unbiased, you can't have one thing and expect that it's going to answer questions in a way that makes you happy and me happy and someone who has a very different point of view. This idea that a chatbot becomes kind of controllable from a kind of system level, to me, is really interesting in terms of how we'll get information and bias the results from a perspective that we value or that we want to start with. I find that to be an interesting idea. Mm. So, I have just um, like a very basic question. I understand the arguments that like, oh, if we don't do China and stuff like this, it's inevitable. Is this all a good idea? Like from everything you've read, is this a good idea? It doesn't matter if it's a good idea anymore. Well, no, no. Like I it mean, does it, matter, actually. I mean, is we're, microwave we're, popcorn a good idea? No, I mean, I think I have- Probably I mean, this not because I think that is leading the cancers. I think that's one of the... I, I want to try to give a serious answer. Here's why I say it doesn't matter. Once we've opened up the possibility of technology like this existing, it's very hard to put it back into the bag. I kind of wish that the world was simpler and more predictable as it was before this all happened. I and mean, in the Middle Ages, time, we would have rounded up all of you technologists and burned you at a stake. I mean, yeah, but when, when, when was everything, anything ever held back? Let, let, let me. Everybody keeps talking about. Well, you know, we held back DNA modification and we held back nuclear proliferation and biological testing. All of these things require massive labs, equipment that would be traced as it crosses customs, shit that you can see, movement that you can see via satellite. It's not little Bobby in his bedroom. Okay, let's say we stop it. Italy goes, oh, we're going to stop AI. All right, well, let me just get a VPN and BitTorrent some model onto my computer. 
All right. And what the fuck are you going to do against that? That's why I'm saying it doesn't even, I think we absolutely need to be very, very careful about what's happening. So it could be a very, I, I agree. Idea. We should be very careful about what's happening. If that's the sort of moral reasoning. That's well, going well, that wasn't, the, that wasn't the question. The question was, is this a good idea? It's not, it's, is it an inevitable happening? Is it a good idea? Yeah. Because inevitability is a cop out from actually having like morality. We do like the humans, we still have that right but i don't understand the, the framing of that question like who who's having yet what is the good idea let's maybe clarify okay should we go down this road because i mean you've painted a very compelling and somewhat apocalyptic picture of all the downsides of this is a good outcome worth this because the, the argument seems to be we have to do it we have to do it we have to do it okay is this a good thing? So basically, the unfairly attacked tech people are like sowing the seeds of humanity's demise because Bing Can I lost try to, to answer Google. That? We were talking media, and now you keep steering the conversation back to: Is this a good idea or not? And I'll take. Okay, I think it's so a foundational one. I don't even think it's worth discussing because it is, and it's like we ain't stopping it. Okay. So this is why this is why you got GDPR. Mr. IAB chairman, because okay. man, GDPR couldn't stop people from yeah, I know, recording we people's told, clicks. We were told in this very same manner that privacy is dead, get over it, right? I believe well, that was- I just was going to reframe it slightly. And all I was okay. going to say okay, is, reframe it. how do we put limits on this technology such that we limit the risks of little Bobby in Italy getting on a VPN and hacking into some nuclear enablement system? <laughs> I mean, at, yeah. <laughs> that was in war well, games, wasn't it? It's Matthew right. Broderick. Uh, but, you know, how do we no, benefit from it. all of the wonderful potential in health and education and all of that? And what kind of guardrails should we be thinking about? How do we get much better at, you know, even in media, the reason that media is important is because there's lots of downstream shit for media because people do stupid things when they consume the wrong information. How do we as a society start to think about the kind of veracity of the content that people, how do we create a structure so that media can be trusted? Is that possible? Should we get smart people thinking about that? How do we create a crack AI team inside of the CIA that has got the best tools in the world that can start to get in front of anything that potentially any of the kind of these apocalyptic scenarios like how do we use the technology more effectively to protect humanity while allowing it to do all the wonderful things i think that's how we have to be thinking about it and in the short term we can't allow people like donald trump to win the presidency because he <laughs> I, won't give a yeah. fuck well, we don't know how that's going to impact the election, but maybe Brian, like another way yeah. I was thinking of framing your question, the good, bad idea for me is, is it a good idea to do this kind of freewheeling testing out in the open in public versus doing it under kind of government, you know, some, so, yes. some sort of like kind of government control? That's the big question. Should we be putting this out there into the world and see what happened while the stakes are still relatively low, which is actually something I think Sam Altman says. Or should we keep that kind of closed and make sure that we figure out all the different use case? And I think, I kind of wish this technology doesn't exist. It's the, one of the first technologies that I feel the most really uncomfortable about. And I'm a technology optimist usually. And I also feel like we're doing really uncomfortable things by testing this all out in public. I just cannot see how if you kept this, all, this whole stuff like completely closed source, how you would test all the different use cases while, like I said, while stakes are still relatively low. And... 
hey, maybe this forces us to fortify our banks, our system, our telecoms, our nuclear silos, whatever, but at least it'll force us to do that. I've gone from being very skeptical of the doomerism to like, shut it down. I'm moving to Italy. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't seem worth it. Why is this worth it? I think it's a I don't know, man. question. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth it because it helped us cure all diseases and get us out of the climate change and make us a multi-planetary species. Or I think we're at the fucked up time as all this stuff like drops and we still don't know how to use it and we're going to get hurt. Maybe in three generations from now, people will be like, God damn it, thank God all this AI shit happened. But right, right we, now- We got to get on a good we're product. The, we're the ones- got, But like, I really do, I think we should continue <laughs> the conversation about whether we should do this or whether we should round up the technology people. Well, maybe like, we should do this a two-parter and have another part of this next week. I am very not convinced. I mean, the idea of governments doing the experimentation, I hope we're not going to do it at the Wuhan like AI Institute. And it's just like that, the gain of function stuff because there is a good debate about whether gain of function research is even worth it it's like no you have to do it you have to do it it's no you don't have to do ever, anything and mm. if the idea is we have to do and i i believe we're a technological species and we will always want to push forward with technology i'm now a believer in your theory that we'll eventually just sow the seeds of our own destruction as as in the last hour humanity yes i have wow. changed my my view wow okay. because like you know what's starting you know what's starting to sound very compelling brian is an afternoon nap a nice leisurely meal waking up you know, around eight o'clock and strolling to the local espresso place in Florence and having a coffee yeah. and then a nice conversation sometime during the day, you know, maybe in the evening, seeing a movie, just a simple, a, a simple Why life. How do we go back to this? I want a pastoral life. I've been convinced of this. I, I you know, they've, they said that like flip phones have been selling out because Gen Zers are trying to get offline a little bit. So who knows? Maybe this pushes us all to spend more time walking. Walking in Italy. Should we go to good products? Bobby. <laughs> this is Bobby the Italian, Roberto. Well, Bobby's in his bedroom until the world explodes, so he knows what's up. I forgot to bring a good Should product we... today. You don't have a oh, good I product. have a good product. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I went to the movies yesterday for the first time in a long time. Actually, for oh, the second time. Did you see the time. new D&D &D movie? No, I watched John Wick 4, yeah. which was a fucking spectacle. And I was thinking about it, how big tentpole movies can be good products. Because, you know, Marvel's been not doing very well. They kind of lost the plot a little bit. But in the past few months, we've had Top Gun Maverick. We've had Avatar 2. And we've you had... You loved Avatar. You got mad at me about that. And we've had John Wick 4. All movies which really feel like... They, they all felt big. And they all felt like real events. And being at the theater to watch them felt like you were enjoying them the best way you could. And John Wick 4 is its just the amount of set pieces that this movie had. You know, there's five or six or seven scenes that would make kind of the height of any movie, any action movie. But it piles them up and you're kind of exhausted at the end of it. But it's incredible. And I do think that there is a shift maybe in theater that these big, dumb movies... And, and I'm not calling this high cinema, but these big dumb movies are kind of made for that type of roller coaster ride of being in a big sound system with other people that are also whooping and laughing when some guy gets his hand shot off. Whoop. Yeah, I like it. I, I like uh, it. You know what else is not a, a is a good product if if we're going to use this as a kind of good product slash media corner with a couple of minor reservations. The new Tetris movie is worth watching for sure, and it's the story of you know one guy's quest to 
kind of buy the IP rights to Tetris from the its Russian inventor and all of the kind of machinations that go on that try to prevent him from that. It includes the evil Robert Maxwell who tries to kind of thwart his efforts to do the right thing and pay and get the rights and all this but it really Just started based on when a true he was story based on a true story there's a there's a kind yeah. of a corny chase scene in it when the bad guy russians are trying to prevent him from getting on a plane and it's a little mm. bit exaggerated but the movie is is great and tetris is a very very simple idea and a wonderful game and one that i remember when it came out and i remember obsessing over it and i like the movie so that'd be my mm. submission All right, well, okay, let's wrap this up. All right, let's wrap this up. Thanks so much for listening. Again, if you've made it this far, let me know your thoughts on this. My email is brian at therebooting.com. Russians are going to be cast as villains in Western movies for another generation. Like they haven't before, but they've definitely replaced the Chinese. Yeah, but... Although John Wick, I got to say, (laughs) it's... it's (laughs) I think it's a a French guy. Uh, You know who are never bad guys? Canadians are almost never bad guys. No, no. I mean, they're not... Yeah, they would. Yeah. (laughs) See you guys. See you next week. Thanks. 